0: And welcome to another episode of Moments That Rock. I'm your host, Tony Michael. this. I apologise for the short absence of a week or so, but after a holiday's came back and got COVID. But now I've recovered from COVID. And I've also recovered from Novid, which is the inability to post any of this stuff on YouTube with reels and stuff. But that is about to change. Today, a very special guest. A gentleman by the name of Dave Robinson. Uh, gentleman I've known for a very long time myself worked for him um, with Stiff Records and Island Records when he ran that but uh, Dave's been around a very long time which of course makes him very old (laughs) sorry Dave if you're listening Uh, anyway I think my storytelling probably was inspired by this man because um, he's a brilliant storyteller we had him on three years ago and um, I've been respectful I should have been hustling every week for uh, programs but nevertheless he's back this is a man who uh, tour managed the animals and a gentleman by the name of James Marshall Hendrix. Now Jimi Hendrix, if you're a younger listener, has been dead for fifty-four years. He died in September nineteen seventy. Um, in a four-year career, he absolutely changed everything. He was widely regarded as one of the greatest and most influential guitarists of our generation. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame described him as Uh, Arguably the greatest instrumentalist in the history of rock and roll music. Um, He moved to the UK when he was 24 because Chas Chandler, who was the Animal's bass player, uh, decided to become his manager and within months he had three top 10 UK singles. He appeared at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, in 1968 was his third and final album, Electric Ladyland, which actually reached number one in the US. By 1969, he became the world's highest paid performer. Unbelievable. Headline Woodstock in 1969, the Isle of Wight 1970. All this in four years. Keith Richards recommended him to the Rolling Stones manager, Andrew Luke Oldham, and Seymour Stein, who signed Madonna and ran Sire Records. And both of them, didn't see the potential but Chaz Chandler did and decided to manage him anyway I've gone on a bit about Jimi Hendrix but basically go and check him out on Wikipedia listen to his music but listen to Dave Robinson talk about that and the animals and Eric Burden and a whole bunch of other things and also how the industry works nowadays so without further ado (laughs) I think my longest intro ever we will welcome the man himself Mr. David Robinson. Dave Robinson, I saw that you took photos of the Beatles at the Cavern and were the official photographer for an Irish tour by a, some pop group called the Rolling Stones.
1: The Beatles the at Beatles the Cavern, it was for um, Rave magazine. It was essentially not that exciting an idea. They wanted a, a trip to Liverpool and to do uh, about nine bands. Uh, most of them have uh, <clears throat> gone into the uh, realms of history. Uh, the Beatles <laughs> obviously stand out. So uh, nine bands in Liverpool in a day and a half, one of which was the Beatles at the cavern, lunchtime. I can't say that I really was on a musical kind of expedition. I was mainly there for the photographs. Uh, in those days, they were called L 2 R uh, photographs, which meant left to right. <laughs> so yeah. you have to, you just have to get the names right. Um, Paul Paul was uh, nice, forthcoming. Uh, John, I didn't really talk to. And um, they played uh, the same as as four other bands. They played Long Tall Sally uh, as uh, two or three songs when I photographed them and. Um, it was great, but, but it wasn't anything too dramatic. The Rolling Stones, a different uh setup. We had a, an agreement with um, Andrew Lou Oldham to be able to photograph the bands at any point backstage, etc. But the band didn't know that or didn't appreciate it. And I've got a lot of pictures of people's hands in front of the lens. So mm-hmm. I've got all the fingerprints. But... Um, yeah I, t- I took a few pictures and it was good it was a it was a fun it was a fun thing and these tours were rare. The Rolling Stones was a rare tour. I think it was at the Adelphi in Dublin, and Charlie Watts got left behind, so they went in the bus back to the hotel and they left poor old Charlie behind. so I gave Charlie a lift. I had a little mini van you know the the mini mini the fastest roller skate in the world, and Charlie was crushed in the back along with a load of other photographic equipment. And a very nice guy. And a few people noticed him in the street as we stopped at traffic lights. And so we had a, you know, a meeting of the fans kind of picture. It was a really good early days. Were they going to be the next thing? Nobody really quite knew. You know, they were, they were new things, but were they big or were they going to happen? Who knows? So it's... Um, it's like a lot of other stuff. It, um, I only I gave the pictures back to the magazine. I didn't even develop them. So all I sent was the l to Tour details. Just shows you long, tall Sally, very popular.
0: You must have got into the music industry in the sixties and stuff, but I got in in the seventies first as a salesman, and then um, started Island at seventy-eight. But from a photographer's point of view, those days was amazing, Dave, because you were allowed on the stage and all the best photos. In black and white, when photographers were on the stage, now they get three—the first three numbers—in the orchestra pit, don't they?
1: I don't know what that's about, uh, Tony. As you know, and we have discussed many times, the 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 days are gone of the great and fun uh, situations. We now mm. we now uh, you know we have tour managers and promoters who don't allow the media people to do hardly anything, and how do you're right. How do they get good pictures? I don't honestly know. So, um, yes, it's uh, t- times have changed.
0: You know, I think when you get older, you, you kind of look back. And I don't think until the roller coaster stops, really, Dave, you start to appreciate it. Because I look at like people like yourself that I learned from and stuff. But my favourite part of the job was artist development, you know, kind of nurturing and helping develop bands, you know, taking them around to every crappy little radio station you just to get a foot in the door and just watch them grow. And obviously, you too, with a, with a classic case study. People, people ask me, do you miss it? I said, well, what is there to miss? My job doesn't exist, you know.
1: Well... Exactly. You you were, you know, the sharp end of the media uh, discovery of your band. And so your job was to, A, show the band what you did and who they should talk to, and B, show the media how good and how pleasant and how wonderful, <laughs> how <laughs> wonderful your band <laughs> were. So from time to time, I, I always came up with the adage that the band uh, the group or the band motivated the record company and that was a double edged sword
0: yeah so
1: either either they were really great and really friendly and really nice and really into the job as a professional or they were assholes and you know it it could be it could run both ways <laughs> and your job was to try and smooth the waters and get the job done
0: and not be an um, asshole
1: well, try trying to try to avoid that. You
0: know, try and avoid that. Are there any special moments that you personally look back on, Dave? That I mean, obviously, sixty-plus years and stuff is quite a career. But I mean, to come through that period of the sixties and seventies and into the eighties and stuff, and then obviously, CD kind of you know helped the industry massively and stuff. But do you have? Do you really have those? Moments that you savor. I mean, I know you're enthusiastic about your band now, which is great—Hardwick Circus and stuff—and obviously <laughs> your experience is going to be huge. Um, but do do you have stuff that still resonates with you now or excites you? Well,
1: it's it's a really wonderful kind of uh, situation where uh, a group of uh, people, not uh, with uh, university degrees mainly, who get together in uh, instead <laughs> instead of some kind of factory or supermarket job and find that, uh, you know, E, C and G have a whole different connotation. Uh, Also added to by uh, a lyric, a great lyric about their hometown, their family, what they're going through as a band, whatever. So you get this kind of folk element to it, the local music. Uh, And also you try and teach your band that it's it, entertainment as well. It's, a, it's cultural, but it's also entertainment. And people haven't come to dwell on their bills or their, their life that isn't working well or, or anything else. They've come to be entertained, to be taken away from this, uh, this life. And so you expect them to have worked out how to entertain people while delivering the lessons that they think are functional are useful artists are supposed to examine life from the side and be able to discourse about what it's all about or if not what it's all about something about interesting and get away from your mobile phone from mm-hmm. your you know chats with the uh, with the bailiffs when they come to seize your possessions etc so so there's an expertise to it which is part of the thing that I try to impart on my groups is that you're here to take people away from it all. The underground, unfortunately, there isn't essentially an underground. But of course, you're always dealing with something that hasn't been seen before, and you're trying to push that across to the public. Groups yeah. are great. Songwriters are wonderful. If we look back at all the songwriters, be they Frank Sinatra songwriters or the Beatles or a myriad other bands, including the ones I'm involved in, you two. They, uh, it's their songs that w- they will be remembered for, and it's their songs that people dwell on and uh, get comfort from.
0: Going back to the 60s for a minute, Dave, I mean, did you? Um, did I've been you... trying to
1: do that forever. I need an injection.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, know, I noticed you managed, um, the, the animals. Obviously, there was a connection with Chaz Chandler, then wasn't there? But did you manage them before him or, or kind of afterwards?
1: I never managed ever, I never oh, right. managed. Slightly different function, uh, as you know. Um, So, I tour managed them on a a tour. It was a lot of fun. I remember, uh, you know, a few incidences, if you'd like to know things from the tour. Uh, Eric Burden, a very, very interesting guy, a remarkable voice, remarkable kind of roughneck from, uh, from Newcastle upon Tyne in the north of England. Now... When he had his new animals, which is really the people I went out with, he um, he had a his last song was War. He did that War. What yeah. good is it? What are we going to do about it? You know, you know the song. Oh, most yeah. people do. And he would. Uh, this was his big finale, and he would he arranged for his tour manager to place an amyl nitrate uh, <laughs> capsule on <laughs> in a tissue. On the bass player's amp, and before he would start the song, the band would start up. He would turn to the bass cabinet, crack the amyl nitrate. It has the effect of giving you a very big rush of adrenaline, among other things. And uh, then he would turn around to sing "War," uh, and the band would say, "What good is it?" Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So <laughs> wild. <laughs> we played. We played a venue in San Bernardino, and his. His tour manager guy was a guy called Terry McVeigh, who I got on great with. He was, uh, you know, good sense of humor. This was, uh, San Bernardino was a brand new arena. And it had the most novel and interesting thing of having, which had been uh, shown to us in the afternoon. It had a stage that would go up on hydraulics to about 75 feet in the air. And it was totally motionless. You didn't feel the uh, escalation. You didn't feel it going up. So so Terry, <laughs> Terry McVeigh arranged that when Eric turned to his uh, amyl nitrate, uh, cracked it and had a quick sniff of it, the rush of blood, as he turned around to say war, he was 75 feet in the air and he didn't manage to get war <laughs> oh at all. Luckily, luckily, Terry, I was there with him. Luckily, Terry realised that Eric was going to jump off the stage or was going to fall off it, and he rushed out and rugby tackled him and saved his life. But it was very, very, very funny. The band loved it. Terry loved it. Old Eric was a bit uptight about it. (laughs) (laughs) But Eric is a cat, and he's had nine lives or more. He's probably had 39 lives, and that was just one of them.
0: Absolutely. Dave Robinson on Moments That Rock, sharing stories about the animals... Eric Burden, etc. And we'll be back after this break with stories about Jimi Hendrix.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
0: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
2: And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
0: One guy who didn't have nine lives was uh, James Marshall Hendricks. I remember you telling me a great story about when you first went round to his apartment and he opened the door. Tell us that.
1: <laughs> uh, you want to hear that again, do you?
0: Uh, well, oh, I've heard uh, it. Others oh, haven't.
1: Uh, uh, so I had a meeting. Chaz Chandler had uh, seen my band, the uh, people they were called, but eventually they got named the heir apparent, and he decided to manage them. Uh, along with myself and mike Jeffries, who is the co-manager of jimmy hendrix so he invited me to a uh, a meet, kind of an evening meeting at his flat where we talk about the plan for the band so i'd um, you know i'd gathered the best clothes among the group so i was dressed in a suede jacket and various other bits that were not mine at all so i, I came to his door which is a uh, a building uh, near Marble Arch his his flat, and uh, very fancy, very fancy building by my standards. And he um, he had given me instructions of the flat fourteen. So I got up in the lift and ding the bell, but there was no ding. I was very concerned. I, I buzzed it a few times, but I didn't get any ding. And so a figure. Came. It was a glass door. Figure came behind the door, and to my amazement, this guy, um, this black dude, with uh, an incredible halo of of um, curlers, of <laughs> as seen as seen by her sister before her big date with uh, with uh, Brian. Uh, uh, he also had a sarong on, which. Um, didn't quite cover his crown jewels, which uh, which <laughs> I tried. I tried quite a lot of effort to not cast my days down there too much. And I thought it was just. I thought I would got the wrong flat. I thought. Oh, sorry, uh, Chaz Chandler, and he and he nodded towards the the right there. Uh, I thought I'd we'd. Uh, I thought I'd met the the kind of uh, deviant from next door. Anyway, I met Chaz. Chaz was there. And he said, oh, I see you've met Jimmy. <laughs> so this is a guy that I'd seen on Top of the Pops two weeks earlier, biting his guitar to the tune of Hey Joe and freaking most of the uh, musical fans in England out. So uh, luckily, he, he, <laughs> he, got, uh, he got sorted out before anything else happened. He came in looking good. And uh, Risk was a game that at that time was very fashionable in London. You know, take over the world by by music. You know, Risk by war methods. And so Jimmy and I, having lit up a really kind of nice uh, spliff, um, proceeded to murder Chaz Chandler and his uh, very pretty uh, Scandinavian new wife at the game of Risk. So it was a big game all round, and Robinson Hendricks' team one big time. So it was a great introduction. And, you know, where else could you do that? I mean, how how could you write that into your script? There was no way. I left about three or four in the morning, you know, in a haze, in a glorious purple haze.
0: Awful question, really. But did you kind of expect what happened to happen with Hendrix? Was he kind of a bit of a lost soul? I mean, as a musician, he was incredible. I mean, every guitarist's hero, but... What happened to it, well, know, the 27 it's, it,
1: Club? It's, he, he, um, Chaz and Mike Jeffries, the two managers, split up. Uh, it's somewhat down to Jimmy, because Jimmy had uh, very psychedelic ideas about how the music, his music, would go, whereas Chaz had a fairly straightforward, a basic uh, four-piece, three-piece band kind of feeling to how it would all be down to the songs. But Jimmy had this uh, in, incredible... A different idea. And as a result, they split up because Chaz felt his job was to produce Jimmy, and suddenly he couldn't uh, produce him because Jimmy's ideas were beyond him. So Chaz left, and it was a real mistake from Jimmy's point of view. I didn't, I was just learning the ropes. I had no idea at that time. Mike Jeffries was a really a, bre- a bit of a breadhead. You know, he hadn't played in a band, although he'd managed a few and he managed a few clubs. But um, Chaz was a real uh, loss to Jimmy. And Jimmy had signed several earlier contracts, which didn't get disclosed until later. And a few bands have done that, where they signed with odd people on their way up, on their way to the big time, onto the, the big one that was going to open the door for them. And, of course, these people in America, uh, as soon as he was famous, they uh, they came and put a kind of a grip on him, which meant that he didn't get a lot of royalty because he owed it contractually to his new manager, Mike Jeffries, but also the two other people that he had uh, signed to a few years earlier in America. So Jimmy was, to me, I learned a lot because I suddenly it occurred to me that management wasn't just a glamorous kind of occupation. It was actually uh, a pain in the ass to the band. And unless the manager was a real genius or whatever and would add to the, to the income and, and the luster of their artists, that they could be very difficult. And unfortunately, Jimmy had placed himself in the hands of the wrong people. Chaz mm-hmm. would have been great because he'd been a musician. He understood it. And so Jimmy was always back against the wall, having to play too many gigs, having to travel too far, having to do too much press, having to overdo everything. So he was always under the pressure. And that was a fatal thing. He's a lovely guy, lovely, straightforward guy. He produced my band, The Air Apparent. The only uh, production that he ever did was for my band and he did it for them. You know, he was wanting to do that. In order to uh, produce it, because he was very much a night person, he would come in at four or five in the morning. But he told me, whatever happens, Dave, you are are authorised to get me out of bed at 10 o'clock and take me to the studio every day. And the first time that happened, I knocked on his room tentatively. Then I knocked a little harder. Then I opened the door. And it was in a bedroom in a rented house that had uh, mirrors all over the room, I mean, on every crevice. And there in the middle was this huge bed, circular, with black sheets on it. Jimi Hendrix in the middle of it, lying completely asleep. And on each side, uh, one of a uh, Scandinavian pair of blonde twin girls uh, uh, with their hair all spread on the pillow. Unfortunately, being a photographer, I hadn't got a camera at all. And I doubted I would, I would have taken the picture, although it would now be one of the great ones. Um, and, uh, you know, he was a lovely guy. He made the record and, you know, that's what he liked. He loved playing guitar and blonde girls. It was a, a match made in heaven. I
0: suppose when you look at like the, the sad saga of, of what happened with Hendrix, he didn't have the, like the Armadurtigans and the Peter Grants around him that Led Zeppelin did, did he?
1: No, uh, Peter Grand was a whole different ball game. He'd been, a, he'd been a bouncer really. He was given a job slightly out of his uh, place and, and he was, he did what, um, what, the, the Zepps wanted. So they decided really a lot of the stuff that he then did. So he, he, a made more money for them than anybody because he's a very big guy. And, uh, and a lot of it was Jimmy Page's idea, I think. Jimmy had been around a long time, and had come up with a scheme that uh, appealed to Peter Grant, who had worked for. Hmm, and you'll have to help me here. He worked for. Um, Aussie. <laughs> he worked. Who was, uh, well, was the? He managed the Yardbirds as well, didn't he? He did. Yeah. Yeah. He he is famous for uh, letting. Somebody dangle out the window of his office, uh, until he signed the agreement.
0: I thought that was Don Arden, uh,
1: yes, Don Arden, but that's uh, Peter Grant worked for Don Arden. That's the story, yeah, I'm trying yeah. I'm searching for the balcony Don Arden had, yeah, Don Arden had taught uh, Peter how you do these things.
0: When you get a minute, listen to my um. Podcast that went out over Christmas with Henry Smith, who was Jimmy Page's roadie right from the Yardbirds, and the deal with the management was a handshake deal with Jimmy Page and Peter Grant. He never had a contract.
1: Yes, well that was that was fairly regular. A management agreement in that area wasn't worth the paper it was uh, printed on.
0: What happened with the David Bowies back in the day when you know when Ziggy exploded, and he realized that you know all these places that were you know opening offices all over the world and first class travel, he was actually paying for it. And he couldn't even afford his rent to pay his flat in London.
1: A lot of musicians, it was like that. I mean, an awful lot of musicians who didn't know what they were doing, aside from E, (laughs) D, C and E, um, they they were paying percentages left, right and centre to people who they weren't really aware of. You know, they say the early days, uh, whenever a car turned up for a musician, it, it took a while for the musician to realize he was paying for that car. He thought it was he thought it was because the record company loved him. I don't think they
0: could spell "recoupable," let alone understand what it meant.
1: No, yeah, "recoupable" was a word that was foreign, yeah. and uh, n- nobody could. Bob uh, Bob Marley never was never told that word <laughs> <laughs> on the basis on the basis that he wouldn't understand it. So They just give him an extra advance rather than uh, worry him about the the fact that he was paying for the cost of thirty five people on the road in hotels uh, eating kind of uh, Caribbean food etc and uh, he he was never aware to the day he died that really he had made no money at all
0: I remember when we spoke um, a few years ago and um, in an earlier podcast about um Mali and stuff, and you were saying that um were you the guy that kind of not so much forced the smile out him? I remember you telling me that the only time he seemed to smile was when he was playing football. But like Bob Marley's smile was infectious.
1: Yeah, the pictures that Chris Blackwell seemed to want of Bob were the non-smiley ones. So when a photographic session was done, the record company would X out all the pictures they didn't like so that the ones that were left were the ones that would be used for promotion. and they took all the smiley pictures out because they thought that uh, Bob also seemed to want to be look serious. So they ended up with very serious pictures, which to me meant that a lot of people did, thought that, that Bob didn't like them. For example, white people. You know, people g- grew convinced. I mean, Bob was, had a white father uh, and uh, he a mixed-race individual. But it seemed that... Uh, there weren't any pictures of Bob smiling. It took a lot of effort to find, you know, the kind of songwriting looking pictures on the front of legend with his highly slashy ring. Um, it took a lot it took a bit of effort. Adrian Boot eventually came up with it, but prior to that, um, the record company Island had had only issued very serious pictures of Bob being live or being serious or doing serious things. Whereas, as you say, he was a very handsome man and he looked great when he smiled. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Blackwell wanted to promote him as a rock artist, didn't he? Because if you've got a
0: guy with like a rasta look that doesn't smile, you kind of think, oh, that's Reggie, I don't like Reggae." But they promoted him to a white audience, to a rock audience. Well, they they, make they him didn't. A superstar. They didn't.
1: Yeah, but that, no, Tell me more. That's the point. That's the point is that the legend artwork, the picture on the front of legend, is rare insofar as it does not push him as a heavy reggae anything, you know, dreadlocks, whatever. It's, you know, we all have prejudices and being presented the way that you look good is, is cool. Uh, David Bowie had lots of different personas mm. that he would then, yeah. So he was a kind of a bit of a chameleon. And, um, but Bob Marley's stuff was all the kind of heavier stuff seemed to be the stuff that the media had and the stuff that was used. So my attitude was to uh, find some happy pictures, kind of, uh, you know, serious pictures, but uh, stuff that made him look good. And of course, his music was wonderful.
0: It was a few years before Ireland released Legend, wasn't it? I mean, I know you were running the label at the time. Um, But they didn't kind of put out The Greatest hits the week after he died, which a lot of record companies. Well,
1: he died in 1981 and A Legend came out in 1984. Chris Blackwell told me that he hadn't uh, hadn't issued any albums since Bob died, but that was wrong. He had issued two albums since uh, Bob had died and they Mm -hmm. hadn't really uh, turned the world upside down. They hadn't really lit a fire underneath him, if you'll have
0: excused the pun. Obviously, you were running the label then, but, I, I mean, that was kind of my worst day in the music industry, I think, because I was at um, the warehouse in Leeds with the band called The Jags. Do you remember The Jags? Um, yes, I,
1: I've got I've got your number written on the back of my hand. That's
0: it. Well, I just went to see them up there, and, and Rob Partridge uh, contact me, and the head of promotion, island, I can't remember who it was, was away, so I had a car pick me up, and I drove, well, I didn't drive, but I was taken down to London overnight and like to organize all the obituaries for radio and television. And I was kind of grieving as a fan, and all these radio stations phone up saying, Send me all Bob Marley's records, we're going to put, you know, it was like their daytime show was made easier because Bob Marley had died, for God's sake. Oh, never forget that day.
1: Well, th- that sounds sad. I'm sorry mm. about that. Tony, yeah. nothing to do with me. No, 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 that not is, at all. That is the way. If we look at the big bopper, or we look at uh, various other people, uh, Otis Redding, who died in a plane crash, um, it's uh, it, it's yeah, it's it's what happens. It's mm. it's you know the push to do the next show, to do the next interview, to do the next whatever is. Uh, you know, with record company and or management, whereas the artist probably doesn't need it so much. Tell me this, to bring things up to date. How did you find Hardwick Circus? Well, I found Hardwick Circus through my son, Milo, my youngest son. I have three sons, Max, Jack and Milo. Milo's a photographer and lives at this time in Camden Town. So he was always around photographing bands in the various uh, venues, Camden Town is full of music, or what certainly was four years ago, five years ago. So he was on his way to get himself a really lovely bag of chips. There's a very good chipper there. And he heard music coming out of a pub that didn't have music, so to speak. He knew that this particular pub didn't have any bands playing, yet he heard live music. So in he went and saw this band playing in the middle of this uh, Irish pub. And uh, they seemed to, you know, they're just playing in the middle of the floor. There wasn't any stage or anything. He took a few pictures and he chatted them up afterwards. And it turned out they'd come down from Carlisle uh, the day before and got themselves two gigs uh, at this particular pub and also at the Dublin Castle, a very well-known pub in Camden Town. So Mm -hmm. he... uh, He had always, obviously, and he hadn't passed it on to me, but he obviously fancied the idea of being a manager. So he thought, why don't I get my father involved and maybe his name will be useful for me to get uh, introduced to this band. So he invited me to the Dublin Castle without telling me any of the plot, (laughs) any of the agenda. And uh, I spent the evening listening to this young band. Well, when I said the evening, They played for half an hour. Um, This young band that I thought were pretty good, uh, very good uh, lead singer, and ended up talking to his father, who it turned out was the driver, and they'd come down from Carlisle and blagged these two gigs. So um, on the basis that my son was going to do all the work and I was going to just be the advisory person in the background, Uh, They signed up with my son uh, as their manager, with me as a kind of a name in the background of the contract. Uh, A year later, my son came to me and said, I've got this great gig. Unfortunately, I've been offered this (laughs) photographic job that's really I can't turn down. What do you think? And he left me holding the baby. I've enjoyed the baby and uh, the baby is now coming good.
0: That's great. Obviously, you have to change with the times. You can't promote in the way that you did, like, 20, 30 years ago. But, um, you know, like nowadays, I think people want to know, like, how many likes and followers you have, don't you, on social media and things. But let's not get boring about all that. Let's just remember the good old days. Dave, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I always love to hear your stories, and um, you never run out of them.
1: As long as there's music being played, there will be people like you and I wanting to make something happen out of some of the good songwriters that we come across.
0: You know, I mean, the, the reason I decided to do this podcast was I kind of feel like, I'm, you know, with the bowies of the world and stuff, It's you're almost like on a mi- mission to help keep the legacy alive of some of the greatest artists that ever lived, because I was just watching a Tom Pei documentary the other day and I was almost in tears. Um It's so sad. Yes,
1: that... uh, how incredible was he?
0: Oh, amazing. Love him to pieces. Just a great guy. And, uh you know, anyway... I don't want to fill up with tears. It's uh, we've had some good times, Mr. Robinson.
1: Good luck, Mr. Michael Eady. Well, you
0: got, I've got you on WhatsApp now. She can't get away from me. As always, great stories from Dave Robinson recounting times from the sixties with the animals and uh, Jimi Hendrix. There's early stuff from Dave from three years ago, but I'm going to revisit that and stick them on here and you can listen to some more amazing stories. We also will be revisiting uh, Mr. Henry Smith with more stuff from Led Zeppelin, coupled with all the other stuff. Thanks for listening. This is Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michaelis, and we're part of the Pantheon group of podcasts. If you like what you hear, review it, give us a five star and subscribe and come back for more.